0: Hello and welcome to the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience where our goal is to honor, educate, and inspire. Here at the Voices of Freedom, we do that by recording and preserving the wartime oral histories of Americans, whether they be combat veterans or civilians, Americans who are uh, have an eyewitness to history and whose story needs to be told. It needs to be preserved for future generations. It needs to be preserved for the family members of the combat veterans, the members of the—, of the a family that never uh, heard the stories before, never got a chance to hear those stories, um, and for everyday Americans who are just interested in history that want to know, uh, want to know exactly what happened—be um, it the jungles of Vietnam or the mountains of Korea or the beaches of Normandy—they want to know what happened from the person that was there, the person that actually lived it, and that's what we do here at the Voices of Freedom. If you'd like to have more information about what we are doing, if you'd like to watch some of our past interviews, if you'd like to uh, take a look at our tank collection, you can do so on our website at www.americansinwartime.org. We'd really love it if you could find it, if if you're available, or if you're able, I'm sorry, if you're able to uh, help us out financially. It's what uh, keeps the doors open and what keeps the... uh, Keeps the tape running on these interviews, uh, and you can find out how to do that, how to become a member of the museum, all that good stuff over at our website. Today we've got a very good interview for you. It's one of those interviews that we've been trying to get for a long time. One thing or another always pops up, and for some reason we failed to get the interview, but uh, recently we were able to get it. And this interview is with Alan Kors, and if you don't know who Alan Kors is, he is the Founding chairman of the Americans in Wartime. He is the owner of the tank farm. He is the owner of uh, a little over a 100 military vehicles. We have Sherman tanks, uh, tank destroyers, and a-, a-, a whole bunch of things I can't even list right now. Um, it all started uh, with Allen's first purchase of a Jeep. He wanted to um, to learn about history. What better way to do that than to... To collect some of the the relics of that history, some of the the items that were actually used in combat, used by the veterans uh, to to secure our freedoms. So we, we finally got an uh, an opportunity to interview Alan. In, in this interview, he goes into into depth on his uh, his humble beginnings as a collector of small arms. Alan first began uh, collecting firearms in the sixties. Um. And then that moved into, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, into collecting a jeep, and then another jeep, and then it turned into a tank, and then another tank, and then of course the rest is history. So now I'm gonna go walk through that uh, that history with us from small arms to tanks. Going to talk a little bit about the tank farm and how that came to be, the open house that we have every year, what what the uh, the origins of that were, and why it is he's building a museum, why he feels it's important. Um, that we teach history to to future generations and 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 how the tanks uh, they tie into all of that. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy this interview. It's a very informative interview. Uh, I've known Alan for over ten years now, and I I heard things um, that I'd never heard before, uh, which is always always interesting when you learn something about somebody that uh, that you didn't know, especially somebody as interesting as Alan Coors is. So. Sit back and relax. I hope you'll enjoy our interview with the founding chairman of the Americans in Wartime Experience, Alan Kors. All right, today's date is 12 September 2022, and I'm at the Tank Farm, and I have the pleasure of talking with Alan Kors.
1: It's a delight. the reason we're here. It's a delight to be with you, Dennis. Thank
0: you. Thank you. We can just give some real quick background information. Where were you born, and where did you grow up?
1: I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in uh, 1936. And lived there until I moved to, uh, went to school there, undergraduate, graduate school, law school. And then uh, after school, moved to Washington, D.C., where I went to work with the House of Representatives as a lawyer for one of the committees. Okay. And then after about four or five years of that, I joined Corning Corning Glass, as it was known, Corning Incorporated. Right. And uh, worked for them for 34 years and then retired. and uh, so I could spend more time and attention here at the tank farm.
0: Wow, wow. So do you have any members of your family that were in the military at all?
1: My brother was in the Air Force. Okay. He was a navigator. Okay. Uh, I volunteered for the draft in 1962, and I was told that, in fact, I had actually signed up for the Air Force to go Mm -hmm. into the Air Force JAG. And when I got home from taking the bar exam, there was a letter from the Air Force saying, we've reviewed your file. And we see that you have a punctured eardrum, so we don't want you. But I was told by everybody that I'd be drafted. So right. I said, let's go, let's go do it. Right. And uh, I went to the went to Race Street in Cincinnati, where all the recruiting offices were, and went into the Army, the Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force. None of them wanted me, but they said you'll be drafted. So I volunteered for the draft in September of 61. And uh, three weeks later, they sent me a letter saying, we don't want you either. (laughs) So I had to go do something else.
0: Right, right. Um, So before you started collecting tanks, you were collecting small arms, correct?
1: I was. I've been interested in, I guess, starts of military history has been a fascination for me since uh, probably 10 or 11 years old. I remember reading the Joseph Altscheller books as a kid, and uh, they kind of stirred my imagination. And then uh, the Cub Scout leader at our church was a retired Marine, and he thought that every young man should be a, a shooter. And so we uh, took us down to a neighboring church in Cincinnati, and they, the church had, had a 50-foot a 50, uh, 50 firing range in, under the sanctuary, wow. believe it or not. Um, so I sh- got into shooting, competitive shooting there and gun collecting. And I guess I got serious about gun collecting uh, from in high school, and then uh, it continued on. Particularly when I got here to, to living in in Virginia, where the the best place to collect guns was being somewhere in the shadow of Inner Arms, Inner Arm Co. At that time, right. Sam Cummings' operation. He's the biggest uh, buyer and seller of sur- surplus military firearms, and um, I was had some good friends there and they let me kind of have the run of the warehouse and get to pick out what I wanted and uh, it was a happy relationship. Right. So I've been collecting ever since uh, 1962, seriously, and uh, enjoyed it very much but uh, that led me to want to know more about what those who served right. did and what they had to do and what was the equipment they used. The Army had a program for tra- training civilian shooters. Right. It's called the National um, the Director of Civilian Mark- Marksmanship, ran the program.
0: Still have that today, I think. We right? Still have it
1: today, supply arms and ammunition for civilian training. Uh, that got me into the service rifle shooting, then it went from the M1 to the M14, then to the AR15, M16 class of uh, firearms. And um, spent a lot of time doing that for 40 years, competing with the Virginia State team. We went to Camp Perry every year, and very proud to say we did well as a team. Um,
0: It's interesting that they had a rifle range in a church. It is some very different times.
1: Very eager guys. They they dug it up, dug it by hand, under a church that had been built in the late 1800s, and they. They dug a hole, basically like a groundhog. They they scooped out all the dirt from under the church. And I'm sure the the city engineers, if they knew what had happened, they would have banned it because the sanctuary was on top of the range. Yeah. Wow. So we'd go down there and shoot, and uh, it was a great place to learn how to shoot and develop an interest in uh, competitive shooting.
0: Right. And from there you got, um, I guess that ties in with your interest with the military history and then eventually... uh, Jeeps and tanks. Right. What got you into, into collecting the larger vehicles?
1: Um, the quest to know what it was like, and so everybody starts with a jeep, and I did too—a World War II jeep made by Ford. In fact, it's back here in, in this okay. behind me. Um. So I, I thought that'd be the only thing I'd want, and uh, but that started a, a a passion for collecting and and. Uh, getting to know the vehicles on a larger scale than just rifles. Um, so I bought a Jeep in 1982. Um, the collection collecting went crazy after that. Weapons carriers, trucks, and then in 1985 bought the first tank. In fact, it's still here. It's an M5A1 Stewart tank. Um, that was the first armored vehicle I had. And I filled a field of warehouse in Warrington and a warehouse in Crystal City, Virginia. Um, and then finally in 89 bought this place, which we now call the tank farm, and uh, consolidated everything here and hired the first full-time staff. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Right. Uh, we enjoy sharing what we're sharing with the public. Uh, we have a, we'll have an open house here, we do every year and uh last September, we had a little over sixteen thousand people that came over the two day period right. and we're expecting the same roughly the same number of people to come in the, in the later in the month right. december twenty fourth and twenty
0: fifth How many pieces of uh armor do you own?
1: Dennis it sounds like a smart out of cancer, but I don't know.
0: It's um, funny you say it because the first time I met you, I asked that exact question and you gave me that exact answer.
1: Because <laughs> it's, it's still the truth. Right. <laughs> um, I don't know. There must be 40 or 50 armor plus trucks, mm-hmm. motorcycles, Jeeps. Um, the primary emphasis is on U.S. equipment. Right. But uh, the collection includes things from Sweden, Switzerland, Germany france england um italy russia um so it's, it's a wide variety it's interesting to right. to get to understand them and to know their strengths and weaknesses at least as best you can do without shooting at them
0: right <laughs> right how does one go about uh, acquiring a tank people always ask me that when we're out and about how do you, how do you go about buying a tank
1: well, the first one came from a guy who bought it from a scrapyard in uh, in uh, Tennessee, and he worked on it, and fixed it up. So that was some that was sold uh, surplus scrap actually by the U.S. Army sometime after World War II. Can't figure out exactly when, but but there were a number of pieces a number of pieces here that came from within the U.S. But a number of them, the richest source of vehicles was Europe um the, the British in particular and now the French and the Italians are very eager collectors of military equipment primarily U.S so they things like this uh, m10 tank destroyer behind me right here uh, that came out of a scrap yard in in England um, the tank this this tank destroyer had set, been put under a 100 feet of junk in a scrapyard in southern England and um, this, this local uh, government said, get your scrap yard out of here. So they worked down through 100 feet of scrap. And at the bottom of the pile, they found three of these M10 tank destroyers and then put it dumped in there after World War II. Um, and fortunately, they were dumped in upside down, which meant that the, the interior of the vehicle remained basically dry, uh, which was really a benefit to have that in that position in the scrapyard so a friend of mine over there he bought it worked on it got it running sort of and I bought it from him and brought it in here but as I started to say the primary vehicles the biggest number of vehicles came out of England because they got a number of guys that make a living over there what I call pickers like you have pickers going for antique furniture pickers that go for this kind of stuff and uh, so I got to know a lot of people over there who when they hear you're buying they they call you up right. so things came from big numbers came from England uh, others came from Germany um, the German ambassador came out here uh, in the early 90s and I was having open house events for small groups of friends at that time and he said you know it's costing my government $5,000 a beast to cut up these tanks that the Russians left behind when the wall came down Would you like to have some? The answer is yes. Absolutely. (laughs) So that's where the big influx of Russian vehicles came from that are in the collection. T-72s, T-55s, T-34, 85s, etc. I would say England was clearly the the, uh, biggest Source for the vehicles in the collection.
0: Okay. Um, When you get them, they're not. They need to be restored. Um, Right. Parts need to be acquired. Where does that come from, and how does that process work?
1: Well, the parts are. um, We're always hunting parts, and fortunately, um, I got into this in the '80s, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And. a friend of mine, Fred Robke, a g- friend from Indianapolis, Indiana, he's passed on now, but he brought me into the game, and he and I would go to Canada and other places in the world and buy parts, fill containers full of parts, thinking someday we might de- de- need that. Got six of those engines, take them now at a good price, let's take them. So the warehouses here are filled with a lot of things I bought, not knowing whether I'd really need them, thought they might, I might need them, but... Get them anyway. They were cheap enough. So we brought in, I think it was over 25, 40-foot containers full of parts over a period of about five years. And that's been a great source for keeping these things running. This um, Sherman behind here, the engine on it was one of those engines. And we've got six more engines in the warehouse. Uh, We'll either use them or trade, trade with somebody else or something that we need they don't have, that kind of thing. Um, so sourcing parts is critically important. Unfortunately, Mark, who runs the operation here, is very skilled in finding parts on the internet and making parts that we can't find. And it's amazing what he and the team have done. So having the parts is available. We got warehouses back here in, this, in the, the compound. We call it a stalag because it has high fences around it and barbed wire. Um, so the the parts issue is very challenging but we've been good so far
0: we hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast the Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in wartime experience a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating and inspiring the mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. The restoration process
1: takes patience and experience and hard work. It's dirty work. It's nasty work. To sandblast a tank inside and out, take all the fittings and the accessories out, sandblast them, prime them, paint them, put them back in the vehicle. It's a lot of work. It takes roughly, my figure, to do it. A tank like this, like a Sherman behind me, or uh, the M10 right here, um, it takes about a man year, almost a man, one man year to do one. Sometimes it's shorter than that. Sometimes we have a there's a grade A job, there's a grade B job. Grade A is take it down completely to bare metal. Grade B is rub it down, get out the worst of it, the peeling paint off and so on give a coat of paint, but we try to do grade A jobs. In the long run, it makes a lot more sense.
0: You mentioned Mark and his team. So, How many people work on these vehicles and and keep them running and and restore new vehicles that are coming in?
1: We have two full-time, actually, three three full-time employees and uh, a lot of wonderful volunteers. Fortunately, it's There's there's a lot of folks that really enjoy getting to know these things just as it was an interest from me to to get to know them and understand them. So we have about 20-some volunteers who come, and there's usually three or four every week. They come from different walks of life, different occupations, retirees, retired military, retired firemen, a doctor, um, agency people. Um, So we've got this great crew that keeps things going here and and gives great support to what we're trying to do and particularly for the open house events. Uh, They'll be here in force usually is about 20 guys here Um, and a few ladies that help out at the open house events. So it's getting having them is very important to the operation.
0: Um, Some of your vehicles have been showcased in in cinema, television, and, and movies, is that correct?
1: That is correct. We've probably been in 20-some movies through the years. Um, we rent them for movies fairly often. Uh, it's a blessing when it comes because it really helps pay for the overhead. Right. Right. Uh, we have um, we have a movie next spring coming up that uh, be using the Russian equipment. They'll be uh, digging trenches out here and to to do a 30 days worth of filming to do a, a movie about Russians and Germans, so we've got the equipment that right. helps with that story. Right.
0: What, is, um, what is the oldest vehicle that you have?
1: The oldest vehicle is an M-1917 tank, the first U.S. production tank. It's a little two-man job. It's a... Uh, Behind me, somewhere in this <laughs> massive scrap iron, um, it's a copy of the French uh, 17, 1917 tank, the Renault, and uh, the U.S. copied it at the, at the toward the end of World War One, and uh, it was. The, but again, it was the uh, it was the U.S. first production model of a, of a tank for the U.S. Uh, we have one that sat in front of a scrapyard down south uh, that had been sold off. The property had been sold off to a guy who bought it for the sole purpose of getting the tank. He didn't care about the property. He wanted the tank, so he bought the whole package. And uh, he didn't really want to spend all the time and effort to fix it up, but he knew it was worth something, and he came to me and said, you've got something that, that I want. We trade for this tank, so we made a swap. Right. And then we—it had a ruined engine in it. When the when the U.S. Uh, decommissioned that particular model of tank, they uh, used a sledgehammer to break the head on the engine. So they, that was that was the demilling process. So, 12 years later, and countless man hours later. It's now completely restored, Class A, ground up, restoration, and running. Wow.
0: And and I guess that brings up another point. Most of your vehicles are operational.
1: They are. Uh, I can't think of one. There must be one around here that's not operational. Operational means it runs. Uh, It doesn't mean it's been fully restored, but actually we're doing very well on getting most everything restored. There's only one or two more vehicles that that will put into serious restoration. Right.
0: right. You have a favorite? I know it's like asking who's yeah. your favorite child, That's exactly
1: right. <laughs> um, I guess the answer is no, there's not a favorite. Um, the M1917 that I just talked about has got to be considered one of the favorites because it's really a, a triumph to be able to have that model of tank and be in such good condition and running. Uh, By the way, I started talking about engines for that vehicle. It took three engines to make one. We uh, put it together and rebuilt it and put it in. We had to make uh, a couple of tracks for it, but um, it was a lot of work and a lot of labor and a lot of hard work by Mark and his team.
0: So I ask if there's something that you don't have that you would like, and the list is probably long um, of things you'd like to have. But for various reasons, don't have yet. Some may may happen. Some may not.
1: Right. I think there's uh there's a number of vehicles. We were just talking about the M60 tank. There's a lot of things that have been uh, scrapped out by the government. Sometimes they're totally cut up. Sometimes they're just take the battery out. Yeah. Um, so that some of those are becoming more available. They were kind of tight. They are very uh, hard to get during the 1990s. Right. <clears throat> but there's a few that have surfaced in the last, last couple of years, and uh, we'll probably wind up with a couple of those soon.
0: So the open house, how long have you been doing that, and where did that idea come from?
1: Well, that rolls back to, it um, started in, the Early '90s, '92 was probably the first year, uh, and that was a pretty simple operation. Uh, I had a full-time guy here wor- working. Actually, he came from England, and I, I brought him in, in from England, where he had been b- rebuilding vehicles for collectors over there. Um, but in, in the early '90s, I had friends that said, "Sometime we'd like to see see your tanks and see your stuff at your tank farm." And uh, I think the first time we did it was about 50 people came. And um, I got a few vehicles out and ran them around the field. That's where it started. And every year it grew. More and more people came, more of a program, more special events. And uh, we always had speakers that would talk about their experiences in, in the military. It didn't have to be just about tanks. It could be any experience. Right. Uh, and so it grew and grew and, and uh, so we really really got in the high gear of about 93 or 94 Started open houses and we would, in the 90s, we'd get maybe uh, two or 3,000 people that would come uh, to see the, the uh, exhibits. <clears throat> but last year we... we uh, the staff of the museum did some very aggressive uh, promotion with the news media and as a result we had about over sixteen thousand people come out here for the two day event in september of last year and if all goes well there will be roughly the same amount of people coming this year and at, at the end of september um, people had a lot of fun and uh, we have this year is going to be the, 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 a good one. We have a parachutist coming. Parachutes. World War Two parachutists jumping in. Uh, Marine Corps. we doing demonstrations, firepower demonstrations, um, canine dog, canine dogs demonstrations. So it's it's really grown in terms of what we put, <coughs> of what we do. is not just tanks.
0: Yeah. Where did the idea of uh, to build a museum come from?
1: In uh, 2008, I was, was asked to provide a few vehicles, tanks that could be shown or be uh, part of a display over in, in Manassas to uh, promote uh, veterans and and the service to the country. Uh, I helped them do that. And... Uh, Combined with the uh, events that I was having at the at the tank farm with a small smaller group of people, again three, four, five hundred, then a thousand, then a couple of thousand, um, I thought after hearing particularly the speakers that we had U.S. speakers, I thought my interest is really not so much the vehicles; it's about those that served. It's about the men and women in the in the during. The times of war and and peace. My interest was, was became more the people, those that served, like you, uh, and what they did. Um, whether it was at the front lines, at the point of the spear, or whether it was in the rear echelon that never got out of the U.S., everybody in the in uniform served their country one way or another. It takes all kinds of talents and services and people to to run our. Um, to, to take care of the ne- defense needs of this country. Um, <clears throat> by the way, we're going to be showing at the open house coming up artifacts that we got from 9-11. We have a squad fire engine that was there that day, is substantial damage from fire, and sadly the six firemen that came to the Twin Towers on that day perished that day. So we have the fire engine, we have a crushed EMS vehicle that was there. We have uh, a huge piece of twisted, mangled steel that was the floor of, it came out of the second tower, the south tower. Uh, So that will be on display here, and that will be part of the museum display because it's not just military, that's Americans in wartime. Those people were civilians, military, that was part of the story that, Is how we got into what we've been doing for the last 20 years in response to what happened on
0: 9-11. What makes this museum different?
1: I think two things. One, I hope it'll be a, a very clear demonstration of what those who served did. Um let me dwell on that for a minute the uh, you will see on the on the on our logos and uh on our published material and on and the t-shirts of the volunteers etc we talk about three words honor Educate and inspire. Um, Honor those who serve by by educating the the coming generations about what they did, the education part. And hopefully it will inspire the younger generations to try to do something to make this a better country and a better community to live in. And you don't have to be in the military to do that. Um, you can do it in your community. You can do it in your church. You can do it in your whatever. Uh, but be a part of, of doing something positive for the society, for the country we, we live in and, and the values we try to share with the generations coming. So that's a long way of saying um, there's a story to tell. Um, the vehicles are just, immediate, to me now, are interesting, but they're amazing they are really a, just a medium for telling the story. It's an artifact that helps people understand that particular part of, of the military history of this country. Uh, just, and that, but the, this, it's not a tank museum, it's just that I will provide some tanks for the museum when it's up and running that will help the museum tell the story, that the big story that we want to tell about serving the country. So that's what's different about it. We very few places have running vehicles in a collection. Um, so this, vehicle, this museum will have that. And again, getting back to the other point about the values thing, um, we some other museums do that to a certain extent, but not to the extent that I hope we will do it and do it in a very uh, successful way. Education. Of the future, future generations is what I'm interested in, and if the if the kids and the, and the adults find experiencing being on or near a tank that rumbles by, that's terrific. Education should be fun. It, may, it helps kids particularly learn. Um, so we 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 want it to be a very active, dynamic museum. Outdoor displays. Um, trenches, etc., obstacle courses, um, those are things that I think will make it somewhat different from other museums.
0: And, and, and your, your focus is really about on, it's about those who served. Yes, and their families. And their families, and taking that and educating future generations, and exactly. maybe even inspiring them to serve. Exactly, we
1: hope they will. Yeah. But again, it doesn't have to be military. Right. It can be, again, in your community, uh, think outside of your own self, right. which is hard to do for some of the elements in our society these days. Right. Can't help that editorial That's comment. True.
0: That's true. <laughs> so the property this, the museum, will eventually be on. Where did that come from?
1: Very kind and generous gifts from the Hilton family. H-Y-L-T-O-1, the Hiltons that have done so much in this, in in Prince William County, uh, in terms of their business and and their generosity, they have given so much to the community. They've built fire stations, uh, performing arts centers, uh, uh, all kinds of things they have built and turned over to the community, and they're doing the same thing here. they it's their land that the museum will be built on. Uh, 70 acres of land over on Interstate 95 at the Dale City, at the Dale Boulevard exit. It's a great location. It's a very difficult piece of property because it has so many ravines in it. But that's why it hasn't been touched forever, because it's a difficult piece. But the Hiltons are providing the equipment to make it a great place to build a museum.
0: Right. To make it uh, usable.
1: Yes, I think we're bringing in every, every day about 125 t- truckloads of dirt come in there and it's t- taking huge amounts of dirt to fill the ravine. They're now laying 60-inch pipes to drain water from one side of the property to the other. Three 60-inch diameter pipes, incredible, flowing downhill through the property, covered over and on into a creek. and. Uh, So, the the property is really exciting. The Hiltons have made this possible.
0: Is there anyone else that's been instrumental in in getting this museum up and running? I know John Jenkins was a pretty. Oh, yeah,
1: John Jenkins, the supervisor from the area, a a retired Army colonel. He fought in Vietnam. Uh, John was the guy that really brought this together. He knew what we wanted to do. Uh, He wanted that to happen. And he put us together with the Hilton family to make this happy marriage. So uh, without those two, Jenkins and Hilton are the key players to making this happen.
0: One of the aspects of the museum is going to be a oral history project called the Voices of Freedom. Why is that important to be? be, recording and capturing these stories of these veterans and these Americans really why is that important
1: well there's there's nothing like the, the human touch you can read it in a book you can see it in a movie but when you can hear it from the, the voices of those that were there and did it it it's going to stick a lot more in the it's going to be absorbed by our visitors who and, and understand that and uh, Lori Landau and Bob Mays, who are g- good friends of ours, they have been very generous in supporting this project, uh, providing us with the resources, the financial resources we need to collect the histories, to buy the equipment, the truck, the trailers, the cameras. Um, so they've been a key to this, this program.
0: Well, I, I, I know it's a long time coming to get this interview. We might or, may or may not have had to twist your arm a little bit. <laughs> but I do appreciate you sitting down and telling us. Everybody wants to know your story, you know, because it, it ties into what we're doing here at the museum. They want to know the, the, the history and how we came to be. Um, so I appreciate you sitting down and talking to us. Um, and on behalf of all the veterans, um, and like I said, there's almost 650 of them, um, I want to thank you for sure. allowing us to record and preserve their stories. They, I can't tell you how many times um, a, a family member comes to us and says, I want to thank you for doing what you're doing because it's great. we learned so much about our loved one that we didn't know before. They weren't willing to talk before, but they were willing to talk to you. Right. So, um, and, and the,
1: Dennis, you've done a great job. Thank you for what you've thank done. Um, I pray that you'll continue to do it. We need you. You've got the experience, but I'm sure if you bring in you guys you guys help you
0: yeah it's great it's a great team and, and everybody loves doing it um, hanging out with veterans and, and hearing their stories some amazing stories um, it's it's truly our honor to do it so,
1: thank you sir I
0: right. hope you enjoyed this interview if you'd like to find out more about the voices of freedom project and the Americans in wartime experience or if you'd like to donate please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.